Welcome to episode 86 of Greater Than Code. I'm Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my good friend, John Sars. Thanks, Rain. I'm here with my friend, Jamie Hampton. And I am also here, and so is my friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, everybody, and I am here to welcome to the show Jesse Oliver Sanford. Uh, Oliver is a software engineer and anthropologist. He works as a senior developer at Cloud City, a progressive software consultancy based in San Francisco, and has been developing Ruby and JavaScript apps for over a decade. He also holds a PhD in cultural anthropology from Berkeley, where in addition to ethnography, he studied cognitive science and science studies. He's maintained a regular mindfulness meditation practice for over 20 years. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. We all know what's coming next. What's coming? <laughs> what's I actually don't know what's coming. <laughs> Superpowers! Oh, right. <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, I think my superpower is really the ability to read. I grew up entirely without a television in an academic family, and I was used to reading research from a wide variety of disciplines at a young age. So I'll be talking a little bit about the brain and cognitive science today. And while I'm not uh, a neuroscientist or a professional cognitive scientist, and I wouldn't want to pretend to be, I've, I think, read widely enough in those fields, and I try to keep track of some of the research. You know, I, I uh, hope that I can at least draw out some applications of what's going on in academia for the benefit of those of us who are in professional software engineering. So my, my training in cognitive science is um, mostly under the tutelage of a guy named George Lakoff, who is from the linguistics perspective. And he's kind of an institution at UC Berkeley known for his work on metaphor um, and more recently on political framing and how liberals and conservatives think. So I did graduate coursework with him while I was in the anthropology department there. I think I probably lack a lot of the biology that the neuroscientists lack, so I'm not going to pretend to have that. What I did for this conference talk was uh, do a literature review of a few hundred contemporary articles and try to put together what I thought were some interesting threads that had some implications for software developers. So are these scholarly articles that are specifically about software, or are they just more generally from cognitive science? Well, I think there's some interesting myths that people are still laboring under. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me is how long it takes really fundamental improvements in our understanding to hit the general public. If you look at a film like The Matrix, it's really still proposing a mind-body homunculus theory of cognition right? The mind is seen as being completely separate from the body. Uh, the bodies are these sort of passive things that are lying off somewhere. And the real action is happening in the mind. It's disembodied. It's seen as being completely separate. And I would say that that has been a typical view of how the mind and body are connected, um, at least in the West, probably since Descartes, um, since the famous, I think, therefore I am. And, um, you know, I think certainly when men took over computer programming from women in the early years of computer science in the 60s, it was probably based on a similar kind of a, a, a similar kind of thinking, right? Um, the mind was active as opposed to the body, which was passive. The man was active as opposed to the woman who was, who was passive. And I think these stereotypes really carried right through into, in, into how we think about coding. 
But some really interesting research has been done in the 21st century, which demonstrates that actually cognition doesn't take place primarily in the brain. Well, it may take place primarily in the brain, but it doesn't take place exclusively in the brain, I should say. And that cognition is actually an embodied process that takes place in a dialogue between uh, neurons and muscles that are recruited throughout the entire body. So some of the most interesting line of research that I wound up running into that that I think folks really deserve to know about, even if they're not in neuroscience themselves, uh, are a series of studies that have been done in the last decade on the effects of Botox and restyling. Now, Botox, as you know, is uh, a cosmetic treatment for removing things like the wrinkles around the eyes and the nose. People use it presumably because they want to look younger, more beautiful. They want to eliminate the signs of aging. But as you know, it's made of botulism toxin, and botulism toxin uh, actually paralyzes the muscles in the face temporarily. So that that offers an interesting opportunity for researchers, because researchers are then able to take folks who are voluntarily going to paralyze their muscles, (laughs) find out what the effects of that are on the the rest of their thinking. Um, It it seems like there's some selection bias in there, but maybe that's unavoidable. Sure. Let me describe the way some of these studies have been set up, and then we can come to our own conclusions about whether we think they they make a lot of sense. So like a lot of psychology studies, what they do is they show people a series of videos or a series of images, and they ask them to interpret the images and videos. So in the studies that I've been looking at, which are on the effects of Botox injections on emotional experience, they show people images that might be seen to have a greater or lesser emotional effect, things that might be triggers. And uh, they do that both before and after the Botox and restyling treatments. Now, interestingly, Botox and Restyling are actually totally different products. I think Botox is a lot more widely known, but what uh, Restyling does is actually very different. Restyling is, seems to be more of a compound that adds resistance to prevent muscles from moving, but it still allows the neural signals to reach the muscles, um, unlike the Botox, which actually prevents that. So what has been found is that they actually have opposite effects on the, the way their users perceive emotions. Botox decreases the response to mildly negative and positive stimuli, um, whereas restyling actually increases that response. So why is that? And what do we get out of that distinction? Well, it turns out that there is a feedback loop between the muscle response and the brain, the centers of the brain that are responsible for processing emotion. And that feedback loop is essential not only in how we feel emotions ourselves, but also in how we perceive the emotions of others. And that's probably the real groundbreaking finding from this series of studies, that people who receive these treatments not only experience changes in how they feel their own emotions, but they also experience changes in how they perceive the emotions of others. So it turns out that that feedback loop, that cognition actually isn't just in the body and the brain, as opposed to just the brain, it's actually also social. It's in between bodies, and it actually routes through the kinds of reactions we're seeing from other people. And it's really important to be able to feel the micromuscular reactions in ourselves when we perceive an emotion in someone that we're talking with. So let me make sure I understand this correctly. The restyling injections, actually, it sounds like it makes it harder to move those muscles. Is that correct? So then you have to use, uh, you have to send stronger signals to those muscles to get them to move, which 
makes your brain think it's a more intense thing, which then when you see other people smiling, it's your brain thinks it must be more intense for them. It increases your own response to mild negative and positive stimuli. That's fantastic. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now, it turns out that there's a lot of things involved in emotional cognition. If you come across a truly tragic situation or a truly joyous situation, these treatments are not going to prevent you from experiencing that tragedy or joy. You know, this is nothing like, oh, we're turning humans into robots. This is actually a relatively small effect. But I think the reason that it's interesting is that it gives us a, a window into the cognition of emotion that we haven't had before. And I think that that directly bears on the work we do as as software engineers. Um, I spend a lot of my time programming in pairs. Uh, it's the technique that we probably use most often at Cloud City. And I think that the difference in experience for me when I can see the other person's face, you know, it may not be something that's practical to set up in every single coding relationship, but if I can see that other person's face and I can get that emotional feedback, then we're much more likely to have a focused, engaged session, particularly if we like each other. And uh, I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. It, <laughs> your your initial uh, lead-in reminded me of a, a quote from Douglas Copeland in Microsurfs, where he described his body as a station wagon that he drives his brain around in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would I would say that that uh, is is more of the passive view of the body unless you have a pretty fancy station wagon. If you're just driving an old Subaru like I am, then I don't know about that. My Subaru gives me a lot of feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Probably off topic. (laughs) A lot of feedback I don't want. But you get to pick the Subaru, but you don't get to pick the body. That's true. There's something you said earlier about how cognition is, I I forget exactly what you said, but I remember it as a conversation between neurons and muscles that get recruited all over the body. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out for our listeners who can't see the video that you were, in fact, waving your hands as you were talking. (laughs) 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 Which is exactly what I thought of when you said that. Yeah, even when I know nobody on the call has video, I find that my hands move just in the course of having an ordinary conversation. So it's an old habit. I probably can't, can't think without. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is that it's part of the thinking process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I find when I'm working through complex programming problems, I will, I will use my spatial reasoning. And sometimes that means moving my body around and assigning physical locations to certain states and so on. So yeah, totally makes mm-hmm. sense. Well, I would not want to question your experience in that regard. Um, I'm sure you are using using your spatial reasoning. And um, I'm pretty attached to the idea that coders who've already mastered the information involved in a, pro- in a problem domain and who are particularly engaged uh, good coders, I think there's a pretty good chance they still do recruit spatial reasoning. Um, but that actually leads into the second area of research that I wanted to touch oh, on good. today, which is the first set of fMRI studies about how people think when they code. Now, these are really crazy. If you think that talking to people before and after their Botox and showing them emotional images is pretty crazy, imagine what it must be like to have somebody work on a coding problem and then slide them into a full body tube fMRI machine. You know, these machines, they're not small. And they're also not going to do an fMRI while you're at your desk. So what's been done to be able to use fMRI 
to investigate coding is actually giving people coding problems to solve, a timed problem, letting them spend a certain amount of time drafting a solution, but maybe not completing it, and then informing them that they're still going to uh, have to solve the same problem after they get out of the MRI machine. So the hope is that that creates enough momentum for the subjects that as they uh, go through the machine, they're still thinking about code. And what's really interesting is that for most people, mathematical reasoning centers and spatial reasoning centers are actually not recruited very much. There is a stereotype to the effect that we should teach kids coding the same way we teach them math, and that maybe if you don't want to do calculus, you should be able to do computer science, or that maybe the kids who are really good at math are going to be really good at coding. That may be true for other reasons. I think there are probably correlative factors about why kids who are good in school and other technical concentrative disciplines like math are also good at coding. But what they found when they started putting folks through the MRI is that they were actually recruiting areas in the brain. They're, they're called Broadman's areas, and they're basically a few dozen rough segments uh, for different parts of the brain and how we think they might be connected to different functions. Um, they found that they were actually recruiting areas that are primarily associated with language, with attention, and with working memory, um, with short-term working memory that can be called upon to solve a problem again. So I think that's an interesting result. I think it would be even more interesting if we could take some of the best programmers and see if they use their brains any differently when they're coding. So, yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the intersection between mind and body. And for probably as long as I can remember, have sought information about the how they work together rather than how they're separate you know, details about how, like, I think related to what you were saying about how changing your physiology can change your mental state, like uh, power poses and, you know, even smiling can actually influence your, your mental state. And then to other findings about, uh, like, that more serotonin is produced in your gut than in your brain. And I think there are also a, a, a huge amount of neurons in your gut area versus your brain, and they're actually connected in the fetus. They're together and then they sort of separate along the brainstem as the fetus is developing, uh, which I always found incredibly fascinating that, that those two systems are so tightly related. I think for me, the fMRI investigation, it really supports some of my intuitive experience, which is that oftentimes it's folks who have concentration, attention, working memory, and language skills who are able to go into coding effectively. Now, I should say as a disclaimer that I've mostly worked for the last 10 years on JavaScript apps and um, Ruby, uh, Ruby and Rails apps. So while there's been some backend stuff, and you know, I've, I've dealt with some backend performance problems, that's perhaps an area of coding, which is more front end, which is more structural, which is more UI UX oriented. And so it's possible that that's an area in which language attention and working memory are more important than they would be for folks who are doing something else. You know, certainly there are some problems for which it's really important to be able to draw on calculus or to be able to draw on a lot of discrete math. I think it points to the importance of cultural capital in determining who is able to be a successful coder and who isn't. And to the extent that cultural capital is important, to the extent that you have to be 
comfortable in order to be able to concentrate to the extent that we have to eliminate or reduce language barriers and make sure that people are communicating well, um, regardless of what languages they're using. I'm thinking of coding languages, but it really doesn't matter whether it's English or Spanish or what have you. You know, I think emphasizing the importance of that kind of safe, ongoing communication on a team is a way that we can help level up people's language and attention skills. And I think that's likely to make them better coders. I know that the Sapphire Wharf isn't in, I mean, that that applies here because I think if, if you've got better language for what you're talking about and describing for communicating it to other people, I mean, A, it makes the team more effective because you're, everyone's able to communicate at a high level and understand the problem space. But then you also have that secondary effect on the actual ability to think about what the problem is and what its solutions might be. Yeah, there's sort of a tacit admission of this in our culture when we talk about naming things as being one of the two hardest problems in computer science, right? It reminds me of like the cultures. I've read stuff about like the cultures that have like more different words for like certain colors will be able to like actually see more shades of the color because like talking about it in that way and like thinking about it in the way where you're differentiating them in speech like actually makes your brain better at like making out these differences. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when you were talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think this all bears on a question to which there's really a staggeringly wide range of answers, which is, um, what is flow? What is a state of fully absorbed concentration on a task? I imagine that some folks have probably run across uh, the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is the scientist, uh, I think he might be retired now, um, was at Stanford for a while, I think, uh, who really coined the term flow and studied flow um, from a psychological perspective. And um, I think one of the interesting things about uh, Csikszentmihalyi's uh, definition of flow um, as a state of fully absorbed concentration on a task is that it's actually pretty closely compatible with a definition that anthropologists will know from our canonical literature, which is actually from Victor and Edith Turner, who were two anthropologists in the 60s who studied the importance of ritual and communitas in building um, common cultures. And what they observed was that Cultures around the world had various forms of ritual, which were group activities that were repeated in some of their structured particulars. And that as people engage in those activities, they move into that state of full absorption and into the activity because, you know, often it'll engage the body on several levels. There might be elements of sleep deprivation, or there might be feasting, there might be dancing, there might be different kinds of movement and so forth. And what those do is they serve to, I think, recruit all different aspects of cognition and and of the body and the brain in a way that brings one fully present in the task of engaging with the ritual. The result of that is... Um, this feeling of communitas, this feeling of a common connection around a common experience that can bring a group together. And I think that that feeling is equally important for our software development teams in the contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Are you, it reminds me of, if you're familiar with um, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel's Flow Genome Project. No, uh, I'm not. They've been spending the last couple of years studying flow states in sort of 
as, as much detail as possible in trying to build maps for different ways of getting into flow and looking at the neuroscience and then actually building experiences that can help individuals and groups get into flow states together. Uh, and one of the interesting neuroscience tidbits that came out of that research was this one of the hallmarks, physical hallmarks of this, of the flow state is what's called transient hypofrontality, which is an actual reduction in blood flow to the frontal cortex of your brain while you're in that flow state, which basically, I mean, you'd think that that would be impair your focus, but when you're in detailed flow state, it takes out those parts of your brain that are chattering at you, that are criticizing you, that are making you second guess your decisions so that you can be completely on task without interfering with yourself, basically. So in the book, uh, Rise of Superman and the sequel to it, Stealing Fire, the names are um, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler. I can post links in the show notes. Talk, go into a lot of detail about people who have gotten good at getting into the state, uh, high-performance athletes and such, and then also what they've been able to do to sort of map out different ways of getting there. It's really fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. This is totally a tangent, but I just finished reading uh, Michael Pollan's latest book about uh, psychedelics, and uh, there's some interesting re research in there about what those do to the brain, and it sounds like pretty much the opposite. They seem to shut off what's called the default mode network and allow a lot more interconnections in the brain so that a uh, lot, lot more areas of areas of your brain light up and start talking to each other that otherwise normally don't. I have a question about what you were saying before about ritual and you described like a lot of aspects that might have been in ritual in like years past or for different kinds of like, like religious or social things. But you talk about how that could also help uh, us as developers. And I'm wondering, like, what are some of the aspects of ritual that you see in developers and engineers and like how you think that is helpful for, you know, flow and all of these things we've been talking about? That's a really great question. I'm going to take a leap and tell a story from personal experience. One of the first experiences I ever had in which I was managing a bunch of engineers was in college. And I was that guy who would hire and manage the kids who sat in the computer labs answering people's questions. Uh, so for whatever reason at my school, they were called UIs. Nobody was quite sure what UI actually stood for, but we were the folks who had the keys to the computer lab and had to be there from dawn to dusk, uh, in some cases, 24 hours. And, you know, we had to deal with all of the printer problems, all of the lost theses, all of the kinds of crazy questions from people from throughout the university. And, um, it was a staff of about 80 part-time student employees. And one thing that was interesting about this group was that it was probably one of the campus jobs where there was the strongest, quirkiest identity for the employees connecting with each other. And although, you know, computer scientists, this was this was in the 90s, um, I'm pretty old. So although computer scientists were thought of as being sort of antisocial and unathletic, we had a pickup football league, and we had a whole kind of initiation process that you would go through through your first um, semester as a UI employee. And that involved getting folks lost in the extensive system of tunnels below the campus and um, encouraging them to explore these tunnels and figure out how to get in and out of various buildings um, 
unobserved. And uh, so we had a variety of games and excursions in which we would go and investigate these tunnels together. And I think, you know, one of the effects of all of this work was that as UIs, we started to develop a language for talking with each other about different kinds of users, different kinds of situations that would come up in the computer labs, and also a body of shared experience that we could draw on that connected us to the hopefully connected us to the same goal. Were these like things that you and like your friends came up with or were these things that were like passed down by people who had worked there before you? That was stuff that was passed down. I mean, I certainly stepped into it when I wound up in the manager's role or what have you. But that was stuff that was part of the tradition of being a UI at that particular school. It's really interesting. Certainly. And certainly, you know, MIT and Caltech are famous for those kinds of activities. I think my school was a little bit less so, but I think similar kinds of engineering cultures probably evolve in a lot of different places. You know, there are elements of it that are problematic, right? Like, not everybody is going to be able-bodied and is going to be in a great shape to shimmy through tunnels filled with maintenance pipes, right? There may be people who, you know, are claustrophobic or who, you know, do not have interest in participating in any of these things. And so I think ideally we want to encourage healthy cultures that embrace people in their differences and adapt to work with the people who are actually there. That's an important thing to recognize, too. I'm reminded of that study about the monkeys and the banana and the ladder. People are probably familiar with it, uh, where um, there was a banana on the top of a ladder. And anytime a monkey would try to climb up and grab it, they, they were, like an alarm would go off or something. Some negative stimulus would happen. And as monkeys moved in and out of the pen, eventually none of the original monkeys would be left but they would still prevent a new monkey from doing the thing. And my favorite thing about that story is that it never happened, but we keep repeating it as if it did. <laughs> it proves its own existence. Yes. Like boiling frogs. <laughs> but I think it, it is interesting to think about some of the things that happen in engineering cultures that become ritualized. So sometimes that's parts of process. Like, why do we have this meeting? Well, we've always had this meeting. And to understand that not just as, well, that's obviously bad and, we, and that should never happen, but I think that process has cultural value. And you're probably more equipped to talk about that than me. But I think that we do this because we always did it is a pretty strong answer, you know, in terms of motivating you know, a group of people culturally to do something. It's tradition is a pretty strong motivator. Would you agree or disagree? I think it gets tricky. I came to... Ruby and Rails in the Bay Area and very much in the wider orbit of Pivotal Labs. And there's a set of practices that Pivotal Labs were well known for um, adopting agile techniques and so forth. There was a certain amount of knowledge about how Rails worked that in the early years, you didn't necessarily get from reading the code. You got it over beers after work from somebody who was on the core team you know, or from somebody who knew somebody who was on the core team. And so there I was I was deeply conscious. And this was really when Twitter was in its old location and a lot of those engineers kind of would all hang out in the same area, you know. I was deeply conscious that my ability to solve coding problems for my clients often drew 
as much on my social network as it drew on my technical skill. Yes. That meant going to people who are at other firms saying, hey, did you ever notice how this broke in this way? It meant being able to recognize people when they were out in public and being able to sidle up to them with that question about what was that uh, association reflection actually doing anyway, you know. And as, as an anthropologist, I was deeply conscious of that as a privilege. I was deeply conscious of it as something that was not necessarily going to be a, be available to the coders who were outside a certain core of companies or outside Silicon Valley and uh, really outside an, an oral tradition or an oral community where those kinds of exchanges could take place. Probably that is less the case in a kind of much larger software ecosystem where there's different kinds of documentation and so on. But I would imagine that what happens there is you wind up with organizational silos. So you wind up mm -hmm. with black boxes that might be specific to Microsoft or specific to IBM or something else. And then uh, the oral tradition becomes about understanding those specific black boxes. In this case, I think because there was so much of an open source, source ethos and you know because we were doing Agile so much in the office at our desks, I think probably it was a little bit more informal and hopefully some of that information was able eventually to be disseminated a little bit more widely. I'm summarizing this in my brain right right now as technical information is culturally transmitted and technical practices are also culturally transmitted, which is, again, something that probably a lot of purist nerds would really not like to consider. <laughs> Code is political. Yeah. Right. You know, I think um, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was pairing, and I would love to get into that. This is another pretty intriguing study for me. Personally, I think it's possible to achieve flow in a pair programming practice, and I believe that I've done it. Um, I'm not sure that I would claim that it's the same flow that I achieve when I'm coding solo, uh, because I think the activities are different, and different inputs require my attention. You know, and I, so I think the general conclusion of the Ruby community on pairing is probably borne out by the research that I've seen so far. For most teams, pair programming is a highly effective norm, as long as it's not required and the team has the emotional intelligence to find pairing matches that make sense for them. And what's interesting is that we're starting to be able to evaluate that in ways that are actually quantitative and explorative. So there is a, measure that some some psychologists have developed, which is called hedonic balance. It was actually originally developed to evaluate the potential for success, where success is defined as long-term continuity of marriages. And the observation of the, the folks who developed the hedonic balance measure was that they could predict whether a marriage was going to end in divorce based on just a few minutes of high-resolution video of the two people in the marriage having a conversation with each other. Lo and behold, <laughs> it is possible to apply the same technique with some pretty good predictive value to um, <laughs> to pairing. And what you do is you take high-resolution video of the two people who are engaged in a pairing exercise. You zoom in on some of the video, and they have ways of categorizing changes in the micromuscles of the face that express you know, really very small emotions that we experience as we interact with each other. Some are positive, some are negative. Most of them are, by and large, probably not really very important, but they are a fundamental part of how we're understanding each other as we're communicating. 
So it's possible to predict then from that video slice and from the hedonic balance score a significant portion of the performance of that pair. Now, it's only about 70% predictive in uh, the study that I was looking at. And that's the study super is not high. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that a lot of times what will happen in a pair is that one person will check out and the other person will do a lot of the work. Um, so a pair that's not performing properly, it could be for a couple of reasons. Maybe both of the developers are really new to that problem, or they're really not comfortable. And so they're both not performing very well. So they pair together, but they still don't really achieve very good performance. In another situation, you have very uneven pairs. And oftentimes, uh, the person who knows more about the problem domain starts driving, and the other person just sits there. And what happens there is that you get something which is proportional to the performance of the better coder in the pair, probably not as good as the performance that that better coder would have if they were going solo. Again, for our listeners, better is in air quotes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's the more um, the, the person who is more informed on that particular problem domain can wind up driving solo in a lot of pair contexts. And what happens then is that the performance of the pair is close to but not as high as the performance of that person if they were working solo. But if you do have good hedonic balance, and I think one of the things that that probably indexes is whether people care about interacting with each other, whether, you know, if somebody does have more information on a problem, do they care about socializing that information? You know, are they paying close attention to each other? Because paying attention to each other is rewarding in and of itself. Any conversation involves many communicative gestures offerings, if you will. And those gestures may be received well, or they may be received poorly. They may be returned, or they may simply not be returned because they were not received. Maybe they weren't understood, or they were in a language, or they were inaudible. You know, um, They were in some way incomprehensible to the other person. So whatever it is that causes that conversation to go off kilter, it's important to return to a place where it's mutually pleasurable. And that's what this uh, notion of hedonic balance is trying to index. It's trying to index whether a pair of people can return to a place where the conversation that they're having is enjoyable for both of them. And I think that's really important in pair programming contexts. And I think we should be asking ourselves as we form teams, how can I develop an appreciation of each person in their particulars so that I can connect with a wider range of people um, in a way that is effective and gets the work done? I have to admit that I find this idea of hedonic balance, like, it's interesting, but it's also a little bit, like, viscerally terrifying to me in a way that's, like, hard to explain. But, like, the idea that, like, someone could watch a video of me talking to someone and then know more about my relationship with that person than like my conscious brain knows, like freaks me out a little bit. I don't know if that's yeah. the proper response. <laughs> One of the things that I haven't been able to look into yet is whether the conversations that the researchers had the pair do were particularly significant conversations. So, you know, I find it hard, frankly hard to believe that, you know, if I'm having a conversation about the weather with my partner, that that's going to be a really good indicator, <laughs> you know, like if we're having a conversation about something that's maybe more significant to the ultimate relationship that maybe has more 
opportunities for stress, <laughs> you would think that you would get video that would then reveal a different measure. So I'm not exactly sure whether water cooler chit chat or <laughs> talks about the weather or, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about that mortgage payment? Uh, I'm not really sure whether those are all equivalent. Those things are still important social glue, though. If I remember from that original <clears throat> research, I believe one of the sort of key micro expressions that a lot of it hung on was contempt. And that it, like, it's, it was a very well documented micro expression. And when they spotted it in couples, like the percentage of, of those expressions was highly predictive of the success, long term success of the relationship. Huh. And given our discussions of contempt culture and the way those things are handled in, in tech, it seems highly relevant that, especially in an unequal pair, if the higher power side of that pair is exhibiting those micro expressions. It's going to be bad for people. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's exactly what the researchers do when they look at the video. They actually categorize, they have contempt and uh, a schema that's about three or four other expressions that they're looking for. And that's what they do is they actually categorize on a sub-second basis whether they think those expressions are being displayed. So it turns out it is basically the same thing. Hmm. One of the challenges for me is that you can get better at pairing. It's it's a skill set you can develop, but it's not a skill set you develop in college generally. It's not a skill set you develop reading technical books, going to technical conferences. It's a skill set that's about as far removed from understanding algorithms and data structures as you can get. It's far further from computer science and far closer to couples therapy. And I think that it's a skill set that a lot of engineers, in my experience, don't either want to acknowledge as being a skill set or they don't think it's worth learning or they 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 have this visceral negative reaction to the idea that that could be part of their job. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think a lot of that is probably rooted in the policing of gender. It's interesting. I've been. I've been learning a little bit more lately about the process by which coding became a male activity. At one point, it was viewed as something that was so routine and so kind of loathsome and slow, presumably with vacuum tubes, that it was something that was best assigned to the secretaries, uh, who, of course, were probably female in the 50s and 60s, at least stereotypically female. You know, I think once it became a little bit faster and it became seen as a site of innovation, then men crowded in. And I think there's a good bet that for a lot of men, the the need to feel like an expert is probably a lot stronger. Um, <laughs> the, the need to defend, the need to sort of have a significant area of personal expertise or something. I'm just kind of beginning to work along those lines, and I haven't really figured out, I haven't really traced a whole genealogy of how that happened yet. Yeah, I've seen some, I, I can't put my finger on the source now, but talk about that dynamic where either there's some, there's some cachet to some sort of profession or activity the men crowd in and then as a group society morphs the perception of that activity into being something more elite, more advanced. And also at the same time, tweaking the language so that it's more exclusionary to women so that they leave the field so that the balance switches off and that there are plenty of, of examples of that sort of thing be, you know, beyond tech and beyond just that, that initial sort of general switch in the, 60s and 70s 
that we're looking at. I, I'll have to dig up the rest of that information because I think it's fascinating to think of that for, as a sort of a cultural movement of perception into realms that didn't used to be perceived as valuable. So I'm still curious about pair programming and if there's any other uh, interesting research that you've come across that tells us whether we should or should not be pair programming or how we should be doing it or what else is on your mind? Well, I think pair programming is generally a great practice um, for a lot of the reasons that are conventional, but also for reasons that are rooted in this new cognitive science research. We've seen that it may make it easier for people to get into a state of flow um, if they're fully engaging the body, if they're engaging some of that uh, emotional intelligence in connecting with the person as well as the code. But we've seen that that doesn't apply to all to all pairs. And I think that if you don't want to be pairing with that particular person for whatever reason, maybe it's not a relationship that's safe for you, or maybe it's a relationship where there's a lack of respect that's difficult to overcome on one side or another, then those are things that are going to affect performance. And I think it's important to address them. The goal, though, would be to address those kinds of issues in an additive way rather than a punitive way. We need to figure out how to develop teams that are going to work harmoniously and happily together, where people feel rewarded for offering and delivering on accountability and rewarded for interacting well with each other, and where they also feel supported when they are not able to do so for whatever reason. And I think I think there's a lot of emotional intelligence and a lot of good wisdom that can go into developing that team. And, you know, some of the stuff that we've emphasized at, at Cloud City in terms of really revisiting the importance of diversity in the workplace, um, having a lot of deep conversations about gender and how it affects our work. Um, hopefully those conversations are leading to a sensitivity that allows us to contribute to folks' teams in a way that is is supportive and helps people come closer together. And I think when people are able to work closely together in a collaborative way, where the degree of competition is safe, where it's like playful competition as opposed to existential competition, you know? So it's not about, <laughs> am I going to lose my job? Or is this whole thing going to break if we go the other way? It's about, let's try this. Let's try that. Okay, let's see. You know, and developing a body of mutual perception that becomes the shared culture for that group. You've mentioned emotional intelligence a couple times. And I wanted to come back to something you said earlier that I thought was interesting because you were talking about like, if the group has the emotional intelligence to do something. And I'm wondering, like, what's the difference between the emotional intelligence of an individual and the emotional intelligence of like a group? Like, how do you gauge that almost? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that I have a measure for the emotional intelligence of a group, but I can say how I've seen it work. I think when there's a group that has a degree of emotional intelligence, you're going to see that conflicts can be addressed in a variety of ways, and they can be addressed by recruiting other folks in the group to bring into a conversation. Sometimes it's about having somebody around who both members of a pair respect. And if there's a dispute over which way to go, 
on a problem, maybe the question is to get in another opinion. And then it's important to have somebody who is able to do justice to the different alternatives who are being presented, somebody who's able to really listen deeply and reflect on the solutions that members of a pair might be presenting to a problem. But, you know, ultimately, when a decision has to be made, part of the question is, can that decision be made gracefully? Are there shared values that the group has that are still perceivable, that are still accessible when a conflict arises? So it sounds like when you've got a team that has a lot of this built-in emotional intelligence and it's been structured probably very intentionally to have this, I'm curious about how an individual contributor in the opposite situation can influence that. So imagine that you're really in a situation where you don't have that safety, you don't have that comfort with your other employees, your pairing is adversarial. How can you influence that relationship, influence the dynamic, help the team start building these skills without having maybe the management on board so that they can start guiding that from above? How can you do that as an individual? It's not easy. I don't think it's easy. When an individual is working with a group that seems to have developed some anti-patterns, you know, I've seen several times on some engineering teams, particularly when there's a defensive relationship between the CTO and the CEO or whoever is running the, the engineering organization and whoever they're accountable to. And if that defensive relationship is then mirrored in the relationship between the rest of the engineers and the CTO themselves, then you can wind up with an anti-pattern in which, you know, people may devalue talking honestly and non-defensively about where the code is at, you know, and so they may misrepresent what's done and what isn't done, or they may, you know, avoid interactions where problems could otherwise be solved. And the only real technique that I've been able to draw on for getting out of that situation is pretty slow. And that entails building trust with one person, whoever that one person is, in such a way that you can create a space of safety for them and start to work more collaboratively. And then maybe you do it with somebody else in a different direction, somewhere slightly different in the organization, and you get to know them a little bit better and try to work with them a little bit more collaboratively. And then, you know, over time, particularly if you're working from the bottom up as a line engineer of some kind, it may be possible to develop a cohort that is then able to say, oh, okay, you know, we really want to work in this, this other way. I've also seen that not work out so well. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm certainly aware of situations in which it's become very frustrating for results-minded or results-oriented developers. I think particularly consultants coming into a situation where there may be anti-patterns that have already become embedded in the teams that they're joining. One question is, as the consultant, are you seen as an authority on group dynamics or are you just another programmer who is just there to increase velocity? And it's 
really important to address both. I feel like that's like almost definitional. It's the difference between a consultant and a contractor is whether you have that authority, right? If you're a contractor, you're filling a seat, you're, you know, cranking out features. But if you're a consultant, you know, you're being asked to help out with something that a team recognizes they're not so good at. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think the relationship's often ambiguous, you know, perhaps you've hired the head of engineering of a competitor that didn't quite make it. You know, their team didn't get funding, but it had a good engineering team that's now scattered. Your company, for whatever reason, got funding. And so you've decided to bring on an engineer from another team and um, you're paying that person as a 1099. So are they a contractor or are they a consultant? Well, a lot of times you want the good things, but you don't want the bad things. So you want the technical expertise, you want the innovation, you want maybe some insight into how this other team worked, but you don't actually want to give that 1099 the authority to rewrite your organizational chart or change how people are really relating at the highest levels. It's funny that you categorize that as good things and bad things, right? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of organizations well, I'm, I'm kind of putting myself in the yeah. position of yeah, the defensive manager. But I think a lot of organizations would benefit from less defensiveness in that process. And I think that's one reason, actually, you know, more broadly, I think it's a reason that innovation can benefit from an environment in which employees feel safe. You know, and to the extent that companies are coming in and out of existence, you know, um, startups are going boom and bust. Um, there's constant change. People's, you know, healthcare may come from one source one year, the next source the next year. And, you know, to the extent that that happens, it creates a lot of instability. And that instability is going to increase the amount of defensiveness that you have on your team. So I think it's, it's important to demonstrate a commitment across the entire team and to let people know that you're going to work with them to try to find a way to make everything work. I think I've had the experience of if the team process is set in stone, I think people are going to be naturally more defensive of it than if it's a process that the team evolves on its own. The, the team that I'm on, that's our process. Like we regularly turn things on their head, try different ways of working, rearrange things. So I think each of us as individuals are far less invested in whatever our current process is because it's probably only been around for six months and we'll probably change it in six months. So I think that gives us a little bit less attachment to whatever our current process is, which might be helpful. And has the team been largely consistent for a while? Do people have a few years of experience working with each other? Largely, yes. We have been able to build up that trust with each other while we change our processes around. I'm kind of in the opposite experience where I'm on a team where I've been on the same team for about a year and a half. And like I am the the most senior as far as like time person on the team. There is nobody left from when I started at all. Just me. I mean, it's been interesting to kind of be there the whole time and see how it's evolved, but it's also very interesting how like people come to me for like, well, how do we do things? And they're asking me like, well, how did you do things before I was here essentially? And I'm like, well, I will tell you, but like, 
we mean something totally different now than it did before because it's just me and now you and like how do we do things how do you think we should do things and it's like kind of interesting striking that balance and it's definitely interesting to me that people have this instinct to like come to me for this sense of tradition that if it means something to anyone it only means something to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah there is a lot of hidden authority and a lot of hoodwinking that can happen in the use of that simple term we this makes me think of the work of bruno latour who's a french scholar of science studies really one of the foremost thinkers on science and democracy in our age. And he actually advocates in a book called The Politics of Nature for reconceiving democracy along slightly different lines from the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature. He feels that the fundamental questions for democracy, and I think you know those apply on, a, on an abstract level to small groups as well, are who are we and how can we get along together? And one of the things that's interesting about those questions is that you have to keep asking them. You can't just ask, who are we once in, you know, 1781 or something, and then leave the answer unchanged. Because who are we actually changes. New people show up, some people leave, new situations show up, and those situations sometimes count as people (laughs) one way or another. (laughs) And so you wind up having to ask that question again, like, well, who are we now? Then the second part of that question, how can we get along together, to me seems like, you know, what's a survivable, livable mode for us to interact? What's a way that we can be happy in this work together? Yeah, that reminds me of the idea that teams are immutable and that you change one, it's a brand new team and you have to reconceive who we are every time that happens. I I think it's a really valuable concept to keep in mind. That's interesting because I I think of it almost exactly the opposite, which is that things are changing at all times. Change is is the constant. And so to think of who are we is almost an impossible question to ask because who we are is a process and not a thing at any one time. Well, I think, you know, governance through consensus is hard. And, you know, eventually some lid is put on the process and a decision is made. And that decision may or may not be the right decision. But I think to the extent that we go with those decisions through obedience to blind authority versus going with those decisions because they actually seem to be working out, we potentially risk getting into some dangerous situations. That's interesting. Uh, Karl Popper, the philosopher of science type person, he has a theory on progress and government and democracy, which is that the only thing that you need to achieve progress is the ability to recover from bad decisions. So if you vote someone in, you don't like them, vote someone else in. If you institute a policy and you don't like it, if you can change that policy and recover, then you can make progress. I really like that because I feel like bad decisions can feel so disastrous emotionally that like, even if you can recover, sometimes it feels like you can't. And putting emphasis on that purposefully, I think is really great. So the the only things you need for progress are the possibility of success and the ability to recover from failure. And that's it. Even completely undirected like processes like evolution can lead to progress under those circumstances. You also need the ability to determine whether something is successful or not. So in evolution, that's, you know, natural selection. So one of the things that you can think about when you're making decisions on a team is 
How will we know if it's successful? How will we recover if it fails? And is it possible that this could work? And that can also help you avoid the perfect is the enemy of the good sort of things where you refuse to make a decision because you don't know if it's the right decision. What about when you don't know if you are the right team or you don't know who is supposed to be on the team? Um, I think of situations particularly where, you know, maybe you're working with technical subsystems that are poorly documented that are coming from external providers. You know, maybe there's some kind of a processor or something that your system has to connect to that is more intricate than a simple back and forth API, or, you know, maybe it's an API that's changing and isn't working well in the way that it's documented. So there's an example of a situation where some of the right people to be on your team may not even be in your organization. It's interesting. You know, one of the things I'm always asking as a consultant and not a contractor is what are we optimizing for? And Stafford Beer, the management cybernetician, has this idea that Decisions should be made by competent information, that the power to make a decision should rest in the people who are, have the competent information to act. And so sometimes I think what is most important to optimize for is learning so that we can become competent enough to act. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I think the whole approach of pair programming is really it's an educational philosophy. It's an approach that says you know, we're going to work with people to level up this team. We're going to increase our bus factor. We're going to socialize this information. I think all of that really goes right back to that, that idea that that constant learning is going to be the key to success in the face of new situations. So sometimes if you don't know what decision to make, the question to ask is, what do we need to learn so that we can make a decision, so that we know enough to make a decision? That sounds right to me. Yay! I have one question that's that's very important to me, and I'm glad that I have an expert here to answer it. What is culture? What does that word mean? You know, culture is a constant evolution of behaviors. I prefer to use the word culture in a way that makes as much sense when applied to a Petri dish as it does when it is applied to a human society. It's something that grows and thrives through interaction and through a certain environment. I think for humans, when we use the word culture, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with it because Cultures were once seen as being immutable, as being attached to the individual based on the place they were born and how they grew up. They were seen as, as having borders like islands. You know, you had a lot of early anthropologists visiting the South Pacific and saying, well, they do things this way on this island and they do things that way on that island. And therefore they have two different cultures. But in fact, I think that what a culture is, is a culture is a community growing together. And that's what happens in a Petri dish. And that's what happens when we try to grow together as humans on a team or in an organization. I really like that definition. How would a cultural anthropologist approach understanding a work culture? You, you come into a new job you're, uh, with a new client. What do you do to understand how that organization functions as a culture? Well, I think there are a bunch of different ways that you have to look at the situation to understand what's really going on. Typically, you'll be given something like an, an overt code. 
um, somebody else has probably made an organizational chart, which is, you know, something like an official statement of the culture. But chances are that organizational chart doesn't reflect the actual interactions that are making the place grow um, every day. You know, there's a pretty good chance that what is really happening is that there are informal connections or relationships um, that may expedite some processes and slow down others. You know, somebody gets along really well with UX, and so they know something that's coming down the line next week, and so they're able to get a head start on it. Or somebody is running a long-running job, and there's somebody else who's around to hit a button after hours or something like that, you know, when that long-running job is done, that expedites things there. So what I really emphasize doing is spending a lot of time with uh, every individual that I can, um, really getting to know them and trying to create a safe space to understand their perspective. I tend not to assume that different perspectives are going to be commensurable, that they're going to be resolvable from the beginning. My experience is that everybody's point of view on the world is different. And I think I do better from appreciating multiple points of view than I do from trying finally to decide which one is the right one or which one is the wrong one. So if I come across a conflict situation, I try to appreciate the conflict for itself, if that makes any sense, rather than to determine immediately who's right or who's wrong. I want to hear from as many different sides as I possibly can. And I frankly want to delay making a decision for as long as possible. That uh, sounds very postmodern. If, if you're a manager, you can't always do that. But I think in terms of creating a situation where people can learn to get along together, they may not reach a resolution to their conflict. But if they have, if they have a sense that they're appreciated, if they have a sense that they're understood, then they may be better able to live with not having that. I think it's important to do the work. That means going beyond just doing interviews, beyond just kind of coming in like, you know, a, a group psychologist or an HR consultant or something and interviewing people about their team dynamics. I think it's important actually to participate in the team and in the ideal engagement for an organizational anthropologist. You'll participate in, in the team in a variety of roles. That means you might do some work as an engineer and you might do other work that is more related to management or is more related to UX or even to sales. And I think by working um, across the organization in that way, you start to develop an embodied understanding of how those uh, diff different folks are seeing their situations and the things that are working for them or they're not working I really like this idea of uh, acknowledging that each person has their own unique perspective on the culture, on their relationships with each other. One of the things I love about Virginia Satira's work in family therapy is that she would make make people aware of this in, in her family therapy sessions in even the smallest ways. So when someone would tell her something, she would say something like, so the picture I'm getting from you and her belief was everyone has their own picture. They don't have reality. They have their own picture of reality. And yes, Virginia's had to your reference. Bingo. You can check that off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some individuals have space for the validity of multiple realities and other individuals do not. 
And if you're not somebody who has space for that, that does not mean that you're a bad coder or that you're not contributing to the organization or what have you. I think that it is a distinct function to be able to appreciate and hold on to multiple conflicting realities at the same time. And ideally, that would be part of the function of an anthropologist or, you know, of, of a manager who's really focused on group dynamics. Um, that would be part of their function. Well, we've reached that time in the show where it's, uh, it's about time to do reflections. Uh, this can be, uh, something that stood out for us. Uh, this can be a call to action to our listeners, something to think about. It can be something that came up for you in response to what we were talking about. Uh, any of those will work or, or all of them. Um, and I guess I'll start. Uh, I just wanted to quickly go back to something, uh, Oliver, that you said pretty early on, which is that, uh, this idea that one's ability to solve problems uh, as a technical person depends as much on uh, one's social network and uh, social skills effectively as on your actual technical knowledge as well. Yeah, that, that seemed really important to me. It really jives with my own experience. And uh, it's something that I hope we're getting more awareness of in the field, but it's still sort of counter to the geek narrative that a lot of us bring with us as we come into this space. So thank you for pointing it out. I'm also thinking about something um, from the beginning of the show when we were first talking about how like physiological things about bodies can affect like our minds and the way we're thinking. And I think that on the surface, that is a very intuitive thought to me, particularly as like a transgender person, like I would definitely agree with that. Um, but some of the, the science that was being brought up and cited was aspects of that that I had never thought of. And I'm really, I was really interested in it and I'm glad that we talked about it and I want to look into it more because this idea that like, you can affect things about yourself by being mindful of these facts about your body is, um, really fascinating, but I think also could be really helpful in like a practical way. So I want my call to action for myself, I guess, is that I'm going to study into that a little bit more. So thanks. Yeah. I'm pleased to see that there's more research going on uh, around the mind body connection and the, the deep interrelation that's showing up in the evidence. I'm, I'm pleased to see that because it's something I've always thought was really valuable. Uh, and also the discussion here is I think brought up for me, like even more importance to the social environment of the team as far as a direct impact on the, the effectiveness of the team. I mean, it's of course something I've always had a, a great appreciation for, but delving deep down into the neuroscience level about how the thinking and the emotional communication are happening in feedback loops between people and within people and within people's bodies and brains, you know, just as even another layer of confirmation that the people you're working with are so incredibly important. I'm really happy that there are parts of the larger software community that are starting to focus on the hard skills, like how to interact with other humans and less on the soft skills, like telling computers what to do. My, one of my big takeaways is that I think that when we look back on software in 50 or 100 years, we'll realize that the code we wrote was a very small and unimportant artifact of what we're doing as, as, as communities and as cultures. 
and that a lot of this stuff is is going to be much more important. Oh, oh, extra insight. Oliver, you said earlier something about how culture is a constant evolution of behaviors, which it occurs to me at this moment is also a really excellent definition of software, because these days all software is pretty much a living system that changes over time. And uh, the only systems that don't do that are ones that nobody uses anymore. You know, I think it's better when it changes over time. So many times I've automated a workflow process only to see it become like turned into stone, like ossified for the organization. And then, you know, particularly when they don't have an engineer around because you're doing a short term gig and then you're gone for a while, it becomes hard for them to change that process. So I would love to see the barrier between engineering expertise and other kinds of functions in human teams be reduced so that those kinds of revisions can be made more on, more on an ongoing basis. Yeah, Sapir Wharf, but with legacy software replacing language. That's great. That's a great insight. Um, I think for me, the reflection from, from the show, I'm excited to engage with some other people who've thought about some of these ideas and really just awed by how little we know, especially considering how high the stakes are, um, and excited for future research in this field. Oliver, thank you again so much for coming. As a reminder, Greater Than Code is purely listener-supported, and we really need sponsors, because Mandy does so much for us, and she needs your support. So if you want to do that, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash greaterthancode, or if you're a company, you can email Mandy at mandy at greaterthancode.com to talk about a sponsorship. Thank you so much. 